constitutional project. Um, I, for the past five or six years, I've been working on a constitutional project from scratch, along with several other philosophical and political projects and various other similar um, types of things. Um, and so, uh, you know, this pseudonym is my sort of my persona when I'm doing political work. Uh, and, you know, I, um, for the most part, an objectivist. Um, I've been working on my own philosophy called bicyclism. But, you know, for the most part today, I'm going to be representing objectivism. Um, and I'm going to be arguing in favor of intellectual property. All right. And uh, you have some, an opening statement to do, don't you? Well, um, so I don't know if the, if, you know, well, I guess you will organize anything like, um, you know, showing the slides or whatever on your stream. Yeah, the, the slides are up on the stream now. I'll, I can scroll through them as you go along. Okay, awesome. Yeah, so in the file 01-terms and burden, uh, and burden um, I'm just basically, um, first of all, I'm mentioning that Zulu and I have agreed not to interrupt each other because um, this is a philosophical discussion and it's not a thought, I'm not here for a, a, a shouting match or a theatric sort of um, uh, what they call a blood sports display. So I've told them, literally told them, I will walk off if he interrupts me um, regularly. I'm going to use a five-strike system. If he interrupts me five times, I'll just leave. Um, if you're having a philosophical discussion, you're going to have to listen to philosophy. Um, you know, So don't interrupt me in the middle while I'm getting a point out. You can take notes if he wants to ask me a question about something that I've said, and then ask me you know, after I finish speaking. Um, I'm happy. I'm, it's okay to interrupt me if you didn't hear something that I said, and you want me to repeat something. That's totally fine. Um, so let's debate. Yeah, and so let's talk about the, the burden of evidence for this debate. Um, we we are both starting from the Welton the Welton Welton whatever it is, the worldview, so to speak, or the state of of cognitive um, recognition that physical property is valid. Um, and I am the one who is effectively asserting the positive. I am saying that there is an extra thing called intellectual property, right, in this context. So the burden of evidence is on me. I'm laying the, po the positive proposition. So I have to lay out a thesis. I have to, I have to say, I have to lay out some thesis for Dulu to actually respond to. So in this respect, Dulu has a home field advantage. If I'm unable to establish a valid basis for intellectual property, then Dulu wins by default, right, because I, I have failed to carry the burden of my extra positive proposition. That's the end of this particular slide. I, I don't know if there's anything that Zulu would like to say in response. No, that's um, all good. Let's move on to the second PDF. Yep, it's up. All right, so the second PDF is me beginning to now make my thesis statement, right? So I'm going to begin to validate or, you know, to, to state my, my, um, my sort of premises that lead to the conclusion that intellectual property is valid. And so we start with, um, you know, um, you know, there's an ultimate end which all values serve. That is life itself, the life of an organism, because life is that end value, that ultimate end value, which makes all other values possible. Dead entities have no values. They cannot have any values because they cannot value anything. Values come from the process of evaluation. A dead entity cannot perform the process of evaluation. All values are made possible by living things. So life is the ultimate value. And then everything else is a subordinate value which serves as a mere means 
to the end of life. So you see, I just gave a bunch of, you know, examples about things, what subordinate values to be shelter, sustenance, food, water, machines, electricity, a turbine, and so on. Next, um, next slide. And so here I'm establishing where values come from. The first value is ultimately life. That justifies itself because it's the, the end that makes all other means possible. But other values like food, shelter, electricity, how, how is it that you come to value these things? Or, or observation, you observe a thing directly and see that it sustains life. Or using imagination. The imagination is um, the more important thing when it comes to intellectual property. So imagination is when you look at some set of objects in the real world and, you know, you in your mind, you reorganize them, you, re you rearrange them into a configuration that has the power to help you to achieve some other value, which ultimately satisfies, um, you know, the, the goal of living your life as what you are, ultimately life as identity um, and pursuing life and happiness. So that is creativity. When you rearrange um, reality in your mind, in the image, you know, of some new thing that's going to fulfill a goal for you. That's the act of creativity. And that is where new values come from. So values are created by imaginative action. Next slide. So ultimately, all value begins in the mind. They are all created by mental activity, imaginative, creative activity. Um, so just this slide is just an example. So, you know, on, on the right side, you see that, you know, you have a, a propeller and an axle rod and, you know, from coils and a magnetic, a mag magnetic assembly, you put these all together and you get a turbine. The turbine in the, in, in the mind of the person who's inventing the turbine is an entirely new assembly. It's something which does not occur naturally in sort of the states of nature. Um, and he had to perform mental work to put things together and come up with this new mental entity. And then, the physical property, the physical reflection of that will be when he rearranges physical reality to reflect in the image of the mental value that he created mentally. So ultimately, all value is ultimately intellectual. We'll talk about property later, but for now we're just talking about values. Value and property are not the same thing. So next slide. So, um... Rights do not come into the picture at all until you, you enter into a social context. Until you have another person whom you have to interact with, you don't need to claim rights. All you have is your life. If you're alone on a deserted island, you don't need to claim the right to take some action from someone else. Because, um, you know, there's nobody else with the ability to stop you from taking action. So you just live your life. You don't need rights unless you're in a social context. Um, so, you know, before there is um, a social context, there cannot be any notion of property. The concept of property is a social concept. It is the claim to exclude other people from the use of a value, or more specifically, property is um, the claim, the value claim, to take all the actions necessary concerning a particular value to pursue your life and your, 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 your values, ultimately to pursue your life as identity and your happiness. So I just have an example down there. You can smoke it by yourself in a room. You're not impacting anyone else. And you don't have to claim rights in that situation. As soon as you, as soon as somebody else enters the room, there's a rights issue because your smoking can harm them. And they have to make claims to be able to live in the situation. And the harm that you're causing them impedes their ability to, 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 
pursue and sustain their continued life and existence. So, you know, once there's the social context, that's when rights and property come into existence as a valid concept. Next slide. So this is just, um, you know, a, a visual example. This is Coconut Island, the big meme thing everybody talks about. Again, if there's nobody else being interacted with, the, co the coconuts in this scenario are just values. They're not property, right? Uh, next slide. And so until another person comes into the scenario, now you have a conflict, or more specifically, now you have a social conflict, but you have a social context within which you now have to mediate the actions that you want to take concerning various values in the environment. And you have to mediate this while living among other people, right? So, you know, again, property. Property only comes in to the picture because, you know, uh, property is a value being considered in a social context. All right, next slide. Yeah, um, and concerning um, how you establish um, an intellectual property rights, ultimately what you're doing is you're taking some set of facts and you're reasoning yourself um, and applying imagination based on your reasoning to the construction of some new entity. Now, um, the claim to valid property, to valid intellectual property, consists of showing your path of reasoning, your path of induction to arrive at that new um, this this new form, this new imagined created um, entity. So, what, so just a, a, a small overview. Um, in the USA, there were two main mechanisms for filing for intellectual property rights, patent specifically. You had first to invent and then first to file. First to invent was the initial system and then they eventually moved over later on to first to file. But, um, you know, um, philosophically speaking, first to invent is the most appropriate system for um, for registering title or in other words for homesteading for lack of a better word um, new claims to intellectual property because for example an inventor like if you were Nikola Tesla you could just so stop note your inventor's notebook um, you know with annotations to the patent office and you know that would be effectively your claim to have invented this with all of your all of your labs and all of your lab reports and everything showing the sequence of reasoning you went through to, to discover this new thing and then you know your diagrams and all that so first, that, that, that's basically an inductive summary of the path that you took of reasoning. And that's what establishes your history, so to speak, on, and your valid claim to invention. And moreover, this, this slide is also important in the sense of discussing, um, you know, when, it, when the social context actually applies. So um, intellectual property is enforced at the moment of the attempt to trade. In particular, you can have knowledge, and let's say you let's say you are a person who did not invent a particular um, idea, but you want to use it. You can produce it for personal use, but you cannot trade it out of your possession, right? Um, in the moment that you attempt to trade it out of your possession, that's when you begin to take a social action concerning that value. The value doesn't belong to you, so in that moment you begin to incur. Um, you know, some harm to someone else because that's when you begin to take some social action. Um, prior to that, if you just sit in your own home and you put together, you know, a ball bearing and, and an axle and a propeller and, and a magnetic assembly and you create a, um, you create a motor or, you know, uh, what do you call it? A generator, turbine, whatever it might be. You're doing this in a non-social context, probably by yourself. There's no one else in the scenario. When you trade it, 
we tried to give it away, that's when the, the property right is enforced at that moment. Intellectual property comes into force. Um, and I'll probably, I'll probably have to um, talk more about this later on during the debates, but for now, this is enough. So this is just a summary, you know, same thing I just said. You may produce in a non-social context any knowledge that you, that you have, any method or patent or that you have knowledge of, but don't trade it out of your possession. You may not trade it or give it away. Next slide. We'll skip the next slide. So this slide that says, what is conflict? Skip. We just skip that because that will come up more in the debates most likely. Um, and ultimately, conflict theory. Um, someone wants to talk about what conflict is. Conflict really is just um, a difference of claims to the use of some value. Um, and there is no such thing as a value without the person whose value it is. There's no, so, no hanging abstract value. Right? Values are always values to someone because it's someone who values them. And they are the process of somebody's evaluation. Um, yeah. Uh, next slide. I think this is the final slide. Right. Um, yeah, and this is just a statement about um, conflicts again. It's a recap, just, you know, so that's pretty much everything I just said, but some words are upside down. All right, thank you. That's all I have to say now. All right, so the upside down slide's the last one. Penny? The upside down one, is that the last one you're going over? Yes, absolutely. The, the other ones are just come up in the debate. I have something as a diagram to use to go about a particular argument. Cool. Um, so I suppose um, I can branch off that. that um, you know, we agree then that, that um, property rights are only relevant uh, when there's other people around. And this is because property rights, the issue of assigning property, only comes up if you have the possibility of conflicts. You know, if it's just Crusoe on an island, there's nobody else around, so it doesn't matter. The question of, uh, you know, the what rights does he have is irrelevant. And this is because uh, law, the area which property is part of, uh, is basically ethics applied to conflicts, right? But then because property rights can only exist in things which are scarce, i.e. things which you can have conflicts over, my question to you is, how can there be property rights in ideas if ideas themselves aren't scarce? Like, Crusoe and Friday can both have the idea of spearfishing at the same time. But uh, Crusoe and Friday can't use the same spear to spearfish at the same time. Right, because the, uh, the spear is scarce, but the universal concept of spearfishing is not scarce. Hmm. Um, so we're going to have to work out exactly what you mean when you're talking about scarcity. So there are two definitions of job can work with just just in case um you went away your your keyboard is kind of loud um, right. just in case you... it's okay it's okay so um so there are two concepts someone can be talking about when you talk about scarcity it's either rivalrousness or scarcity as it's used in common parlance so scarcity as it's used in common parlance is the notion that you know a thing is not available at points of demand whereas rivalrousness is you know when a thing is um, incapable of being used simultaneously by two people. Now, in a in a context where you know if we want to talk about say shade or something, um, let's say we're, we're both in a desert and there are some there are palm trees at, at you know regular intervals but sparse. Now you can say that shade is um, any if if both of us were trying to were to try to stand on the same patch of ground with shade under it, that would be a rivalrous patch of ground because we both can't stand on the same spot. However, shade in that scenario is not scarce, right? Shade is 
abundance because it's available at points of demand. I can just move to another spot under that same tree's shade or I can move to another tree and use its shade. Um, maybe a better example is, say, chicken. Chicken might be abundant in one location, but scarce in another. And the question is, you know, with reasonable effort, can I procure that resource um, at points of demand? When I want it, it's available at points of demand. What I'm saying is I suspect that you, that you are using the word scarcity to refer to rivalrousness. Yeah, so that's what I mean. Uh, if, it, if something is scarce, that means there can be conflict over its use. So rivalrousness is what you're referring to. There's a, there's a, yes. there's a, okay. Yeah, so um, in terms of rivalrousness, I don't, um, well, you, you can't philosophically um, say that that is a factor in property. So um, conflict can arise, for example, over intellectual property. So, for example, I created, say, if I was if I was Faraday and I discovered that, um, you know, moving a magnet through a coil, um, a changing magnetic field through a coil generates um, an electrical current. And then I constructed a motor around that, a motor, a generator, a turbine, whatever it might be. And then I filed a patent on that. The value that I created there, which this new form that I constructed in my mind um, was created with the explicit intention. It was created for the explicit purpose of me commercializing it, of me having the exclusive rights to benefit from trading it to other people. And that was its justification. That is its raison d'etre, its reason to be. Um, and I created it for that purpose. I, I want to use it for that purpose. And you using, you producing that value and then attempting to trade it infringes on my ability to use that value in the pursuits of my life and my values. Um, so there is a conflict there. I had an explicit intention, an explicit, an explicit reason for having created the motor. And, you know, um, you are infringing on that. And yet the idea is not rivalrous. And yet there is a conflict. So, you know, I think he was saying that you cannot have conflict over, you know, non-rivalrous over non goods, but you can't. Especially because ultimately rights concern action and not entities. Rights concern the actions you may take concerning an entity or value. Well, you're incorrect that that would be an example of a conflict, right? Because basically, you're right. Your uh, example there is Faraday discovers, you know, this fact about magnets and uh, coils, and uh, the reason why he went through all the effort of discovering this is because he wants to make a bunch of money. Like that's his goal. He wants to commercialize it. And yes, indeed, if uh, he has competitors who hear about this idea and also try and make their own generators. Yeah, that will infringe on his ability to achieve his goal. That does not establish that there's a conflict. Like, um, conflicts are specifically contradictory actions. So, uh, Crusoe and Friday on an island. Uh, Crusoe appropriates a stick from nature. He sharpens it up into spear because he wants to use it for spear fishing. And then Friday comes along and he says, Oh, you know what, Crusoe? I think that stick would be great for stoking my fire. So, I'm going to go ahead and take it. Right? It, we, we understand that these two actions can proceed at the same time. Uh, Crusoe can spear fish at the same time that Friday stokes fire. So there's a conflict. There's contradictory actions. That's what a conflict means. But in the case of uh, Faraday having competition, there is no conflict there. All that's happening is that Faraday might not achieve his goal. That he was, he might not get as much money as he's hoping. That does not establish that there's conflict. Um. So you said that. Um. Ultimately, you're saying that. Um. What is it? So my definition of conflict is contradictory proposition for the actions to be taken concerning a value. Um, uh, 
I sort of gave a, a philosophical justification for the reason why the creator of a value has exclusive claim to its use. I give a sort of a, a foundational philosophical view. You have life. Values are created in the pursuit of and toward the end of someone's ultimate end, which is his life. And they arise from the, the, the action of, you know, value creation, which is a mental activity. And this mental activity produces mental constructs, which you can then reshape reality in the image of. So, you know, um, and you can conflict with someone over the use of a mental value, right? You have an intended use because you've created for that purpose. And this was a sort of a from foundation. I raised this up. Um, and I wasn't able to understand how you raised yours from foundations to say that, you know, you cannot conflict over a mental value. When I just gave an example, for example, of, you know, I created this value. You know, I gave a whole theory of where values come from. Then I explained, you know, how they can be purposed by the creator of that value for a specific end. And then how it would be an infringement of his valid claim to, have, to, to be at, as the creator to have ownership over that value and exclusive determination over its use. Explain how you can have a conflict over that, over intellectual property. Could you give a theory of value, where values come from, and how your theory of value excludes intellectual property conflicts? Well, no, uh, value isn't really relevant in terms of uh, property rights, because property rights, as we agree, only arise insofar as uh, there is the potential of conflict, because property rights are conflict-avoiding norms. But you can't have conflicts over ideas. Two people can possess the same idea in their head at the same time. It's not wild force. It's not scarce. Right? There can be conflict over its use. The fact that you know somebody might achieve might not achieve their goal when they have competition that does not establish that there is indeed a conflict. Mm, sorry, you said property rights are conflict avoiding norms. Yeah. Um, when you say when you say conflict avoiding norms, what is it at the roots that causes conflict? Well, to is, me, um, is, that, is it a contradiction of intended uses of a value or what exactly, what is the ultimate thing that causes there to be, what are, what are they conflicted over? Well, if you're conflicting over some sort of uh, means, right, or some set of means, when they're trying to use the same set of means towards contradictory ends, the ends which cannot go forth simultaneously, they're incompatible. That's what conflict is. It's contradictory actions to actions which cannot proceed in unison. Okay, I agree. You said it's, con it's conflicting over mean. Uh, I, I think in my, my introductory slides, I pointed out that there is only one ultimate end, and ultimately every other subordinate value is just a means to that end. So I agree that every value that is created is a mean. So you're conflicting over ultimately values, means. Well, it's, you know, um... And so, again, I, I, I ask, given that I... Sorry, please go. It's not that you're... Um... Uh, conflicting over values like I, 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 I agree that uh, in the ethical sense life is the ultimate uh, end you can't have any other ends unless you have unless you're continuing to be alive I agree with that that doesn't establish that uh, you know uh, what you're conflicting over is values right because I could value you know ooh, uh, a hot dog sorry I think you cut off some uh, sorry uh, uh, I could value a hot dog over five dollars um, are you still there? sorry sorry yeah, sorry, I, I, you cut off in the middle for I would say, but five seconds. Right, um, yeah, so the fact that life is, I'll just, I suppose I'll just try and retrace my steps. Uh, the fact that life is the ultimate end, that is not established that uh, you can have conflicts over values, right? Uh, you can, the, 
the only way you can have conflicts is if you are two people are engaged are attempting to engage in a line of action and the two actions cannot go forth simultaneously one action excludes the other that's when you have a conflict sorry you said um the fact that life is an ultimate end and that everything else is just a mean doesn't mean that you know you can have conflicts over values in other words means sorry in the situation that you described where people are conflicting over what you call if effectively a rivalrous object um what is it that's causing them to come into conflict with each other because of this rivalrous object what what is it that why do they both seem to i don't want to use the word value but why do they both seem to want to use this rivalrous object well both of them uh, expect that the object in question will improve their lives some way uh friday thinks he'll improve his life by making his fire better crusoe thinks he'll improve his life by games and fish right Sorry, that sounds to me as if you might be saying that they consider the rivalrous object to be a means to their, 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 you know, yeah, the improvements of their life. Yeah. Okay. Um, in my framework of thinking, I consider means to the ultimate end to be values toward that ultimate value. Would you? Do you think that is an accurate um, way to phrase it? Um. Sure, the, you can have intermittent, uh, you know, uh, I want to spear fish to get a fish, and I want the fish because I want to cook the fish, and I want to cook the fish because I think it will, you know, fill up my belly, and that will, you know, satisfy me in some way. I agree that you can have, like, these capital goods type deals. Um, unless I'm mistaken, it seems that we agree that conflicts are contradictory propositions for the use, then, of a means, in other words, a value. It sounds as if that's a definition of conflict. So let's let's just get that down. Contradictory propositions for the use of a means. Oh, sure, yes. Contradictory proposed actions probably is more specific because rights are claims to actions. So, yeah. Well, I think this is insufficient because I could propose that, uh, you know, uh, I use your stick to spearfish, and you could propose something else, like, but just mere proposition, uh, 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 that I'm, if I'm just floating this as an idea, that there is no conflict yet. It's only when I go ahead and try and actually go forth with this action, that's when they have a conflict. But in the moment that I have proposed to do it, I'm basically saying that I would like to do it, and I'm basically about to try to do it. And the reason why you, the reason why you now have to say stop what you were doing before, Let's say you weren't using the stick, right? But, you know, I signal to you, you were, let's say you were off playing video games, and then I decide, you know, I signal to you, hey, I'd like to use your stick to spear something. And let's say you know that I'm going to take, say, half an hour to, to, let's say I'll take two hours of fishing, and you know that you only want to play video games for one hour, and well, you want to use the stick. So you, you, you want to make sure, sort of, you want to assert your property right claim over for that value. You have, a, you have a contradictory, you know, intended use and a contradictory set of actions you want to take with it, you know, soon. Or you may not have any contradictory set of claims. You just don't want me to use it. Um, at the end of the day, though, ultimately, it's, it begins with a proposition because we begin to mediate the disputes at the moment. There's even a, um, there's even a, a proposition. But, uh, you know, sure. that, that, that's... I agree that, like, you know, in your head, you're going to have to hold that, you know, at the very least, you know, it's often the case that you 
announce what you want to do. But like at the very least, you're going to have to have this proposition in your head that you think you should go ahead with this action. Like I agree there, but it's not the propositions coming into contradiction which makes it a conflict. It's the actions coming into contradiction. It's when one action is excluding the other. That's when you have a conflict. I'm sorry. So if I change it from proposition, you seem so um, if I change it from say proposition to say claim, does that make it any better? If I say that conflict is a is contradicting claims um, to action concerning a value, does that make it better? If you, you know, take like a DSA, uh, you know, let exclusion stand type of uh, definition of claims, then yeah, like if I am in possession of something, I'm claiming that resource. So it's like, yeah, that would be fine. It's not like just the mere decree of it. Like if I just decree that I own the moon, that wouldn't be uh, strictly a claim on the moon in the legal sense. So I'm just saying that I own it. Right? That's, that doesn't bind anything. Uh, um, okay, yeah, I see what you're saying. So that, that's an overloaded use of the word claim. When I say claim in this context, I'm not talking about capture law, as in you know, how, we, how we establish property, um, how we establish you know, ownership of a value. Rather, I'm talking about at what point conflicts can be said to be arising, emerging. So maybe I should use proclaim. So um, conflict begins at the moment of a proclamation at, at minimum, at minimum a proclamation of a contradictory claim to action concerning a value. Does that sound good? I, I would disagree with that then, because uh, me just uh, suggesting, me just coming up to you and saying, hey, I want to use your Xbox uh, to throw in the ocean right now, and you don't want to do that. Just me suggesting this to you does not establish that there's a conflict there. Like, I've not aggressed against you at all yet. It's only if I go in and actually start implementing this course of action, that's when there's a conflict. Okay. Since rights concern actions ultimately, and I don't think that is going to injure my position for me to um, to sort of move past proclamation, I'll accept that. Let, let's let's work with the um, let's see if we can work with the definition that conflict begins at the moment of the attempt to the attempt the assay to um, contradict to say contradictorily use um, you know contradictorily act concerning a particular value. Sure, I can agree with that. All right, so contra- so conflict is the attempt to contradictorily act concerning a value. All right, and I guess we're just going back. Let me just consult my notes to get back to the particular claim that I'm um, attacking. What is it? I, uh, contra- I'm disputing. Right, I think you said uh, uh, that con- there is conf- you said that there's no conflict over intellectual property because intellectual property is not rivalrous. And I yeah. guess my my question then is, um, you know, how is it that, that intellectual property, you know, how how is it that rivalrousness is an, a necessary in- ingredient in conflict? Given that conflict is simply the attempts to use a value in a country, in a um, you know, the attempts to take an, a contradictory action concerning a value uh, because it the only way that you could uh, have contradictory actions is over something which is rivalry i can spearfish at the same time you spearfish we can both have this idea in our head at the same time one person's use doesn't exclude the other person's use okay are you entirely rejecting or disputing the the, the idea that values 
are intellectual that they arise in the mind i'm yeah. i'm setting the position basically that values come from mental activity and the mental rearrangement of reality in your imagination creates new values and that ultimately any physical value is just you rearranging reality in the image what's in your mind so the value is ultimately a mental value and it is quite frankly the process of evaluation is what creates values right evaluations you know values are the products of the mental process of evaluation without evaluation there are no values values are inherently in the very you know the very name and the very concept you know they are the products of evaluation to speak of values without mental you know mental evaluation is to speak of nothing at all no no i completely agree that uh, something is only valuable after someone has gone through some sort of mental process to determine that this item would be useful for their life i completely agree with that that doesn't mean that that doesn't establish that ideas can you can have conflicts over ideas you just simply can't or you can only have conflicts over the particular things that you assign value to that's what you can have conflicts over you can't have a conflict over well, i don't know uh, the universal of redness right you can have a conflict over redness if i was the first guy to make a red bike i don't suddenly own redness and bikeness right i don't own these things because i can't have conflicts over their use Yeah, I think you said um, you agree that so you, you agree that values arise from a mental process, you know, But rather, I'm not just I'm not just asserting that they arise from a mental process. I'm saying that the mental process creates values, and that these are actually values. Right? Yeah, I, that, that's just like a rewording of what I said. Not quite. Not quite. Um, so you are saying that um, values. Uh, I think he was saying that um, uh, you agree that. Um, values, I think, arise from mental activity. But I am saying, so um, you, you could say that values arise from a mental activity, but, you know, the act, the product of that mental activity is not itself a value. I'm saying that the product of that activity is itself primarily and fundamentally where value comes from and it, is, it itself is a value. Does that jive with you? Sure, it is a value, but that doesn't mean it's the ideas which are having conflicts. It's the things which you value, which you can have conflicts over, not the ideas. That, that's fine, that's fine. So um, if we agree that the mental entity that's created from the process of evaluation and simulation is a value, then from there, um, the, the question of rights is the question of claims that you may make in a social context to take action concerning a value. Now, it's not about the object itself, right? The question of rights doesn't concern the objects that you're trying to rearrange as such. It concerns what actions you may take with those objects in a social context. You have a cigarette, so you want to smoke a cigarette. The object itself is not particularly pertinent in property rights, right? Um, when someone walks into the room, you, you may own the cigarette, but there are certain actions you may no longer take with the cigarette. Rights concern actions. And in the domain of intellectual property, uh, what I'm saying is that, you know, yes, I understand that, you know, let's say if the stick is there on the ground or whatever, sure, it's an object. But the question is what actions we may take with this stick. And as it pertains to intellectual, intellectual property, let's say that you, let's say I am the patent holder of, you know, the, um, you know, the Faraday turbine or whatever. I, I invented the motor or the, the generator. And you have in your possession a series of objects. You have a propeller, you have an axle, you have coils, and you have magnets. And you could, 
if you learned about my method, my patented method and my patented invention, you can arrange these together into the form of a motor, right? And so the question is, do you have the right to arrange those objects in the form of a motor and then trade them to someone else, right? It's about what actions you may take with those objects. The objects aren't, and I agree that the objects are rivalrous, but I'm saying you can also have a conflict over the actions you may take with those. In fact, that is the nature of rights. Sure, I agree. It's the actions uh, contradicting that is what makes it, um, you know, that's why we have to have property in the first place. I agree. And, you know, the actions you're allowed to take with any specific object, that would be any action which is non-aggressive, i.e. any action non-conflict. That's what you're allowed to do. And so if you're the patent holder of a Faraday turbine, and I have all the ingredients to make a Faraday turbine, I would indeed be allowed to manufacture one myself and trade it to whomever the hell I want, because that does not initiate any conflict. It might make you upset. It might mean that you get less money. That does not establish that I'm initiating a conflict. Uh, he does not establish that I'm being aggressive to Sorry, if I understood, um, conflict is defined, as we understand it, to be contradictory attempts um, to take actions concerning a value. Does that make sense? Sure. Um, let's say, so when you talk about a value, naturally, there's no such thing as a value which is not owned, right? All values are owned by someone, ultimately. So, you know, all values came from someone's mental activity. They are someone's property because they are rose out of that person's mental activity. So concerning intellectual property, let's say the Faraday turbine again, uh, you know, it's my Faraday turbine, you're coming to do something. Um, you know, uh, ultimately, once again, you talked about conflicts. Um, the conflict is that, you know, this is my mental value because we agree that is, you know, we agree that the mental product of my mental activity is a value. So that's my value. Um, the conflict is that you are trying to take actions concerning my value, which are in conflict with my intended exclusive use of that value for profit. I think what's uh, being the slipping up here is, uh, you know, question of, right, what does it mean to have a value in something? It means, like, I agree with you. If you are creating something, you know, if you spend a lot of time creating a Faraday turbine, you must value that information quite a lot. Doesn't mean that you own the information because the information can be infinitely copied, right? It's not rivalrous. So I, I can indeed engage in actions that using that information, which you don't want me to do, that doesn't mean that there's a conflict between us because you can go ahead and not want me to make a turbine whilst I make a turbine. There is no conflict. One action doesn't exclude the other. Me using that idea does not exclude you from you. So just cap, it's just categorically. There is no such thing as an intellectual property. It's what it really is, is a monopoly grant. It is a negative easement, uh, is the illegal terminology. Like, that's what you have to justify. You have to justify a negative easement, i.e. some partial property right in everyone else's property. That's what you have to justify. It's just categorically, it is not a property right, because ideas, there can be conflicts over the use of idea. One person having an idea doesn't exclude other people from having that same idea. Mr. Second, just writing on some final notes. 
Yeah, sorry. So I think there's something you said earlier, which might help us to get some more clarity. Um, you talked about, you know, trying to patent redness, you know, I guess maybe to copyright redness or whatever, um, or to, to, to try to establish an intellectual property interest in redness. Um, there's a difference, however, between identifications of facts and invention, innovation, you know, um, you know, creation. So if I see, if I, an identification of a fact is when you are able to cognize reality and see some extant phenomenon in nature. You know, redness is not something that you, you don't have to rearrange reality in your mind to come up with redness, right? In fact, redness is directly perceived. Um, quite frankly, you're not, it's not possible for you to invent redness because, you know, if, for example, we do a, a mental experiment with the audience, you know, try to imagine any color outside of the visible spectrum. Try to imagine what a color that is beyond infrared or beyond ultraviolet looks like. It's literally impossible. If you try to do the same with your ears, right? Your ear has a certain audible range of frequencies. If you try to imagine what a frequency beyond, you know, the highest note that your ear can hear is or the lowest note that your ear can hear is, it's impossible. Because consciousness is the faculty of perceiving existence and not of creating existence. So ultimately, every every bit of your cognitive content, every bit of the, you know, the content in your mind is ultimately just, you know, content that you got from reality, which you have rearranged. So you took redness from reality and then you rearranged it in different ways. But redness itself is not something that you created. The act of creation is when you take things that, like redness and then you rearrange it with other things into a new form. So maybe it's useful for me to say that because it helps us to understand what exactly I'm claiming that you can make patent claims on. You can make patent claims on the result of imaginative re reorganization of percepts, objects, which, you know, entities and phenomena that you've perceived. I'm stating that mostly because it's likely that you're, you're, you may perhaps be uh, sort of fighting me over that point um, because you think that I, I would make the absurd claim that people can patent redness or that people can patent, you know, electricity, to speak, right? Instead of, say, patenting a means of transporting electricity or patenting a, me a means of applying electricity. Electricity is a natural phenomenon. You can't patent natural phenomena. Um, and I guess now to start responding to what you actually sort of said after providing that clarity. Um, give me a second to look at my notes and see what you said, to see what I wrote down, I wrote you down as having said. Yeah, so sorry. Um, so I think you said, uh, if you spend time on it, if you spend time on this, you know, this this invention, then you must value it, but you don't own it. Again, um, I just want to make sure that we that we were on the same page. If you spend your mental yeah, efforts, that, that is not my claim. So I'll just like, if you're gonna be making an argument on this, I'll just you know, I'll uh, restate it. I'm saying if you spend time on inventing uh, this Faraday turbine, you must indeed. Uh, value apply attach some sort of value to the principles and everything which goes into uh, the complete inner workings of the Faraday turbine. You must indeed value that recipe, right? But that, but you don't own the recipe. You do own the turbine that you create. But you don't own the recipe for that turbine. That's just a quick clarification. Thank you, thank you. So, um, you know, if you spend time on inventing this, um, let me just update my notes to make sure. Sorry, what? Give me like five seconds to update my notes.
Okay, so if I understand you correctly, you're saying if you spend time on inventing the turbine, you must indeed value the recipe, but you don't own the recipe. Again, um, if I understand correctly, um, I think we, we've established, but let's go through again to make sure we're still on the same page. Um, if I put effort together, you know, if I put on, if I'm Michael Faraday and I put effort into, you know, um, rearranging my understanding of electrical wires and coils and magnetic fields and so on to create a turbine in my mind as my mental value. I do indeed value the recipe I have created, but what's important is that this recipe or this new mental entity, this new form in my mind is not just something that I value. It is something. It is something that I value. In particular, it is a value. It is a means to an end. Um, I, I think that um, the formulation that you gave just now implies that you value the recipe, but the, the, the recipe is not itself a value. And then from there, well, if the recipe is a value, I guess maybe that's what you what you have to dispute to maintain this position. You have to dispute that the recipe is a value because if it is a value, then you do own it because it was your creative activity that created the value. It exists. It came into existence for your life as a means to the end that is your life. So if it forwards your life, you have a right to it. I mean, it just the fact that uh, it was your own creative activity which uh, made this value, and I agree that you know this uh, recipe is indeed something. But the fact that it's something doesn't mean there can be conflicts over it. Property rights only matter when you can have conflicts over something. It's the fact that you created this recipe, right? And uh, we can get into the fact that there isn't really any distinction, objective distinction that is between creation and discovery. Uh, but we can get into that in a bit. But the fact that you created it that, that doesn't imply that you own it. If because there can be conflicts over it, so just categorically you can't own it. It's not possible. In in a theory of value, we're not yes we have we aren't talking about conflicts as yet, right? We're just talking about, you know, values and ownership. What establishes, you know, ownership, so to speak, you know, what what establishes an ownership interest in some value, some object. And ultimately what I'm just saying is before we even talk about conflict, conflict is contradictory claims over the use of a value. Before we can talk about how, con how we can have contradictory claims over, you know, the actions taken concerning our value, we have to know where values come from and whom values are validly assigned to. So once again, we probably have to hash out the issue of a theory of value and a theory of ownership. And ultimately, I'm saying that theory of value, values are created by the process of e-value, of, you know, imagination and so on. And then they rightly belong, the value that was created, this mental value, rightly belongs to the person who created it because it is his means to the sustenance of his life. Well, the fact that it's, uh, you know, this recipe will help, you know, Faraday uh, sustain his life, that does not imply that he's allowed to exclude other people from using that recipe. Right? The only, because excluding other people from using that recipe, it's not inherent in using the recipe that you exclude other people. What that would imply is that he's going around and telling people that they can use their own property in some specific way. That's what it, that's why I'm calling it a negative easement. Right? It's um, oh, I yeah, go ahead, and I mine some marble and I carve this marble into a statue. What I'm saying is, if if I'm saying that I have an intellectual monopoly over the recipe used to create this statue, I own the form of this statue. What I'm really saying is that nobody else is allowed to use their own marble to create the same 
as another statue with the same form. But why, right? Because them creating a statue on their own property with their own marble uh, of the same form of my statue, that does not con- that does not initiate any conflicts with me or with anybody else. It means that I maybe can't get as much money out of selling that statue. The fact that I can't get as much money out of it does not establish that I have a property right in that form. Um, I, I, I wanted to tackle what you just said. So you talked about the marble statue and saying that, you know, um, so there, there are things that you can pay, pay attention and there are other things that you would have to copyright, right? So take, for example, the marble statue. The particular form of the marble statue is a completed work, but it's not about a method, right? Um, it's not, it's not as if you, inv- you invented, say, a method of sculpting, which is new. Patents apply to methods. Copyrights apply to finished works. Um, so that would be more of a copyright. And what's more important, the reason I brought that up is ultimately, in, 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 in our theory, well, in, in my theory of value, um, the understanding here is that value serves the, the tokens sustaining someone's life and their happiness, right? Um, and so when we come to, you know, the question of, when rights come into, come into um, you know, practice. I agree with you that you know, people may freely produce values based on their knowledge, but if that knowledge doesn't belong to them, then they cannot trade it out of their possession. So you can see the statue, and you have in your home, you, 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 are, you like to do, you know, as a hobby, you like to uh, carve up marble in your own backyard or whatever, and you want to you know, have some, you want to reproduce that, um, that statue's form. That's fine. Copyright doesn't apply to you there because you're not doing that in a social context. Now, if you, after you carve that marble into that statue's form, that copyrighted form, if you try to trade it to someone else, that's when there's a social action. That's when you begin to incur a rights violation, right? But you can say if you have a book and it's a copyrighted book, you can duplicate it as many times as you want. You've already paid the copyright owner and you can duplicate it for consumption. As many times as you want, you can have ten thousand copies in, in your in your garage. The time, the only time the property rights violation occurs is when you try to trade it out of your possession. Already, but that relies on you said if that knowledge doesn't belong to them, then they can't trade it. But you're, you're assuming there that knowledge can be owned in the first place, which is what we're uh, debating over. I I see no way that you can own knowledge because knowledge rivalry can't have conflicts over knowledge. It's simply impossible to have a conflict over an idea. You can't do it. Right? One person having an idea doesn't exclude anybody else from having that same idea. The case is completely different in external physical means. It's scarce things, right? When something is scarce, if one person is using it, they're excluding other people from being able to use it. That's what it means to be scarce. But ideas are not like this. They're not scarce. If uh, I'm thinking of some idea, like, oh, right now I'm thinking of the idea of a debating. Right, and you're also thinking the other idea of dating. Right, we can both have this exact same idea in our heads at the exact same time. One action, one person having an idea doesn't exclude anybody else from having that same idea. It's just categorically not a property right then. Like, just this is just what property rights means. It's meant this since the Romans. Right, this is what is meant by property is if you're using it, you're excluding other people from being able to use it. This is uh, DSA's principle of let exclusion stand. But uh, excluding other people from using an idea, that's excluding them from using their own property. Right? So that's actually aggression. Sorry, I made a mistake. Um, I was imprecise in my language and I said idea instead of value. 
So that's probably just recap is really what I said in terms of value. And I, I won't use the word knowledge or idea again. So yeah, so you can have this book, which is a value that was produced by someone else. It was his means towards, you know, sustaining himself as a writer. The book, and that's his value. And then he gave it to you under certain terms. And so you can copy, you can copy that as many times as you want. You can copy that value as many times as you want. I thought 10,000 times in your garage. You can't trade that value out of your possession. It's not your value. And the same with the, the marble statue, for example. That form of the statue is not merely um, just an, an idea or knowledge. It is knowledge, say, facts that existed in that person's mind, facts about marble, facts about color of granites and the hardness of granites and blah, 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 which he first, before he began carving, he rearranged granites in his mind to some form. That form was a created value for him. And then, you know, he carved up that that marble into the form of that value, which he had in his mind. And then, so that's now his value. And you can produce it at home, but you just can't trade it out of your possession because it's not your value. That's a new be useful now to go into the, because we seem to be coming up against this wall again that I don't think there is any objective distinction between a discovery and an invention. Like if I am, uh, you know, if Faraday, when he was discovering his, when he was inventing his uh, turbine engine, what he's doing there is he's discovering that, oh, this specific arrangement of materials, well, uh, you know, within some, uh, you know, uh, tolerances, will yield an engine which, uh, you know, generates electricity, right? That is surely just a very, very specific fact about nature, uh, as opposed to, you know, a very general fact about nature that, like, E is equal to MC squared, right? That's a more general fact. But that doesn't mean that it's not, you know, also discovery. They're both discoveries. One is just far more specific than the other. Let's talk about mathematical formulae, right? So you talk about E equals MC squared. Well, E equals MC squared is a discovery. It's not an invention. I'll explain why. And then I'll give an, an example of a mathematical formula, which is an invention. So E equals MC squared is an identification of the relationship between mass, the speed of light, and energy. Um, mass, let's say mass is the influence of gravity upon an object. And speed of light, you know, is the speed of some particular wave propagating through some medium. And the energy relationship is these the, the particular attributes being measured of the of the mass. Well, mass is an mass is an attribute that is measured about an object, which is well the the amount of gravitational force that is existed upon it. So that's just a measurement of a property of an object. That's not something that you sort of um, that's not a rearrangement of reality in your mind. And the speed of light is something that you can measure. It was measured by Michelson and Morley using the eight sided mirror experiment. That's again that's just you know. Something that you you didn't reshape reality in your mind to get that. You know, that's just an identification of the way that light travels, the velocity at which it travels. And then, you know, the, the energy equation, you know, the amount of um, distance over time um, in, in Newton, that's just, you know, that's just a combination of, well, those attributes um, and their effects upon some other objects. Um, that's not you rearranging reality in your mind. That's just you identifying properties of things that exist in nature. So that's why that's a discovery. Now, let's talk about a mathematical equation, which is an invention. Let's say, if you look at Diffie-Hellman encryption, the encryption basically, you, know, you have a private key and a public key. And what they do there is they take prime numbers and um, you take some really large prime numbers 
and they have to perform prime factorialization. And they realize that, well, prime factorialization is very difficult for anyone to do, especially computers. Well, not especially computers as well. And they realize, okay, because of the fact that computing power is at this current stage in reality right now, I can take that fact and I can compose in my mind a method of taking advantage of the fact that prime numbers are very difficult, you know, to factorialize. And I can encapsulate that in the form of two prime numbers and an, uh, an entire algorithm around um, serializing bits using those two prime numbers and splitting those um, those prime number bits and distributing them separately. See, you just you just took prime numbers, um, you composed a method of splitting them up into two two large prime numbers. You composed a method. Um, you know, there's no there's no necessarily necessary relationship between a large prime number and factorialization. You don't have to factorialize every prime number that you see. You can do many other things with prime numbers, but you specifically decided that you would compose the method, an algorithm that specifically depends on factorialization of prime numbers and splits it into a public key and a private key. This is imaginative work arranging the use of mathematics into a formula, which is not, not necessitated by any entities acting in reality. There was volitional choice here. It's not like E equals MC squared, you know, E equals MC squared, C squared is how nature works. It's the metaphysically given. There's no man-made choice involved in there. However, prime factorialization of, you know, large prime numbers using Diffie-Hellman encryption is a human choice, which was made by human efforts and, you know, was composed by human method, simulation, thinking, rearranging on, into a, an algorithm. And that's why that's an invention as opposed to a discovery. Now, I think you also gave another example. You talked about Faraday's motor. And yeah, the, the reason why that's invention as opposed to discovery is that, um, you know, uh, in, in that case, well, you know, uh, you are applying, you, you have a magnet and you have, say, you know, some kind of casing and you have coils and you have an axle and you have a propeller. None of these must necessarily go together in the particular um, order or particular configuration that is, you know, that, 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 um, that is formulated by Max, by um, Faraday's uh, imagination. He had to put those together into a particular form which achieves a particular end and is of value to him. And he had to create that value. So that's why it's inventive. He had to use imagination and rearrange those things first in his mind into a form that they do not naturally occur in. That's why it's not identification. It's not discovery. It's invention. Right, but you know, something about like prime factorization, right? Surely you're just discovering a very, very specific fact about, oh, if uh, you take very, very large primes, it's going to be very, very computationally difficult to uh, factorize, you know, find uh, which primes made up this huge, huge, huge number, right? That's just a very, very specific fact about nature. Is it? Sorry, um... There are numbers of nature, you know. Um, there are there are entities and quanti quantification, quantization, so to speak, is a mental operation. You know, that's um, mathematics is epistemological; it's not metaphysical. You know, numbers don't exist in reality. They are entities, and then you, in your mind, take numbers and you, you know, or rather, you in your mind take a group of entities and you quantify them. Let's say you you, you say count a number of pairs or you count a number of you know beads or marbles or something and you know you quantify that um numbers aren't like ontological 
So in fact, from the time you sort of begin um, using numbers for anything other than just, you know, brute identification, just sort of brute attributes, measurements, you're really just in, you're engaging in some form of imaginative activity. Right. But then you're just discovering some fact about mathematics, right? You know, whether you want to call that a fact about nature or not, it's not really relevant. You're discovering some very, very specific fact about mathematics as opposed to the, oh, a very, very general fact about mathematics, like Pythagorean theorem. That's very general. That's very easy to get. But uh, prime factorization is very, very specific. Right. But that there's both just discoveries about mathematics that, oh, given this set of uh, rules uh, or mathematical rules, right, uh, we will have this implication, you know, 10 implications down the line that uh, prime factorization is very computationally difficult. That's just discovering a very, very specific fact about mathematics, as opposed to far more general fact that uh, you can relate E and uh, M by by uh, multiplying c squared on the end, you know, and there's some other stuff in there, but, uh, you know, just E equals 1 times c squared is the form. Mm, I don't agree. I don't agree. Let's, let's take this again. The Diffie-Hellman encryption, the algorithm, is not just prime factorization. It's prime factorization split into two different keys, so to speak, right? So what happens is you have a private key and a public key. And the reason it's supposed to be a really great encryption method is that you can give out the public key and you can encrypt things using your private key. So you encrypt them with your private key and they can only be decrypted using the public key. And the point here is that you haven't just sort of um, done prime factorization. No, you've done prime factorization using two linked prime numbers, which are linked using a specific method to ensure that decrypting using one of the prime, encrypting using the, one of those prime numbers can only be decrypted by that other linked paired prime number. It's this double, this key pair, pairs of keys, and the keys are just some prime numbers in a particular algorithm. And the algorithm itself is not just an implication. It's a specific set of rules which you chose, which you simulated in your imagination to give form, you know, when executed, to, to, to give rise to this, um, to, to the, the property that you have this linkage between these two prime numbers. It's not just factorialization. You know, I didn't discover that I can factorialize um, prime numbers. I just, I, 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 I rearranged, or rather, I came up with a whole method of using prime numbers with a whole method of linking prime numbers in a way that ontologically is not necessary at all. Nothing metaphysically necessary about, you know, prime numbers. That means that I must link them together and then separate them as two keys. Great, right, yeah. thing. You, you discovered that if you uh, do all this fancy magic with prime numbers, you can make a public key and a private key. And then you, do, then you uh, decide, oh, I'm going to try this out with uh, the new app that I'm creating. Uh, and you discovered that people like uh, the fact that the app is encrypted or whatever. These are discoveries, right? There is no hard set line between discovery and invention. That's my thesis. Okay, so the hard set line between discovery and invention is mental reorganization. That's the difference. So, for example, let me try to give a, an example. Uh, yeah, so it's difficult to discuss the Diffie-Hellman um, example without getting into a really difficult sort of area. So let's get back to the Faraday Motor example. It's probably a lot easier there. Um, so in the Faraday Motor example, um, the difference there would be his identification would be the day that he discovered that Moving a magnet through a coil of wire 
induces an occurrence in the coil. That was a discovery about the fact of nature. However, there is not a discovery from that point forward. Um, if he begins to look at objects and then rearrange them in his mind, there's no discovery in the sense that discovery is an identification of something that is. You are discovering what already is. You can't discover something that does not already exist. Right? So in order for you to then, you know, uh, talk about, to talk about discoveries, to talk about, you know, uncovering that which was covered before, um, but which already optically was there to be seen. Um, to talk about innovation or invention is to talk about doing something new with, uh, and, and creating some form or something which was not there before. And that would be the difference. The difference that in his mind, he had to rearrange the things that, that were into something that did not ontologically exist before. And then furthermore, he had to physically, you know, to make that real, um, the, the very fact that in order to make that into, um, to reify it, he has to take action and to specifically configure nature in ways that it wouldn't naturally be in. That is the prima facie evidence. That is not something that pre-exists in the metaphysics physically given. That is why it's invention as opposed to discovery, right? It's not metaphysically given. Um, right, but, you know, this process of reorganization, we're taking the, uh, you know, the, the uh, given fact, right? you're taking what you are directly perceiving, and then you're reasoning about it, right? You're going through some process of reason. So you are uh, discovering some implications of this discovery. That, oh, I can take these two different discoveries. Given both of them, it is implied that this other thing must be the case. Like, that's just discovering more things. Like how in mathematics, you can discover all sorts of crazy implications. You can go way down the line and go into crazy shit, right? That's still all discovery. Like, there is no border which separates them because always you're going to be doing some sort of mental activity but like you know uh, what, what really distinguishes is is, is mental reorganization just whenever you're reasoning on facts of nature is that when it, whenever you're reasoning is that mental reorganization no no not there's a difference between reasoning and imagination right because you know you think of uh, you know reasoning is Reasoning gives necessary conclusions, right? If I say, you know, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, I'm not allowed to say Socrates is immortal. I must say from that point, I, I, am, I am mandated by reasoning to say that Socrates is mortal. However, if I do something like this, I say, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, um, therefore Socrates is mortal. I hate mortality. Therefore, I am going to, you know, invent a, a method of... Um, of you know transferring consciousness into a robotic body so that i can I, so that Socrates no longer has to be mortal that's not a necessary inference from the metaphysically given that's an entirely you know that's that's beyond that's not inference that is um that's imagination that's creation all right hold on i'm going to go to the toilet and then i'll uh, respond after that so i'll be back okay. Guys, stop private messaging me. I can't pay attention to private messages on the debate. It's really hard to do that. Sorry, I'm not going to respond to private messages as yet.
here well uh i just briefly wanted to state rather than private messaging guys um direct your messages to the discussion and debate section of the server um ideally not adding our debaters and from there we can either go back to it hopefully after we're done here uh, and so on but yeah the, that'll be more productive than pming thank you Um, like, um, so we were talking about um, uh, the distinction between discovery and invention. Well, the difference between... I think you were you saying that inference, and you know, uh, I think you were saying inference versus something. And I, I pointed out that well, inference is different from imagination, and that's why that's where discovery, you know, it distinguishes itself from innovation. But before we go there, I think it's useful um, to just re. Um, recapitulate the burden of evidence, you know, the burden over here, right? So um, the state of the, the initial state of things was that both of us already agreed on physical property. And I am the one who is asserting the positive that there is such a thing as intellectual property. And the burdens are as follows, right? My burden is to erect a structure, right? Erect some philosophical structure um, that asserts that private property is valid. And then that is sort of taken by default to be sort of valid until Liquid Zulu can poke a hole in it. If he successfully pokes a hole in my my structure, then my structure collapses and Liquid Zulu is by default then deemed to be victorious. But, you know, if he isn't able to poke a hole after sufficient amount of time, then, you know, at a certain point, you know, we can't be here for like 10 hours. If he's not able to poke a hole after a certain amount of time, then that's, you know, I have, at that point I have provided the positive. The positive is some set of inferences from some set of facts. And I defended that sufficiently for a certain amount of time. At that point, I sort of stand victorious. Right? So that's the burden going on here. Just want to recapitulate and make sure everyone understands what what the game is. Sure. And, you know, uh, speaking about, you know, uh, certain amounts of time, uh, this comes up actually in the uh, IP discussions, you know, uh, when would an IP uh, extinguish itself, right? Could I pass a uh, certain intellectual property onto my child? Um, I've spent time thinking about that. I don't have an answer. I think what what's what's more valid, or rather, what's more important here, is establishing that intellectual property is valid. The question of whether it can be, you know, inherited as a chose, you know, or whether it, what if whether there should be time gating or not, or whatever. I'm, that's a more of a political policy question. That's more of a question of how you properly free intellectual property as a right. Uh, that's a political sort of policy question that I am not able. I mean, it, it seems fairly, you know, important though, right? If, if it was the case that there is such a thing as intellectual property and it's like, you know, uh, it's it's the same. It's a, still as type of a property. Then it would extend into perpetuity. Ready? That's possible, but I haven't reasoned myself about that as yet. I'm undecided. All right. Um, what if uh, two men simultaneously come up with some new IP? Who has ownership? 
Um, the proof, so yeah, as, as we talked about a bit earlier in the slides, um, the proof, so to speak, or the, the, the capture law concerning intellectual property is proof of induction, proof of the path of reasoning and simulation that you took, the facts that you took into account, the facts that you re rearranged in order to come up with this new invention. And so that would be your, your primary proof. And then, uh, well, since that very rarely, it's, it's extremely seldom that that does get conflicted. But among two people who happen to come up with the same idea at the same time, then it is the nature of reality that the first to file, to first to register his inductive proof would be the first to get the property. Because as with all property, the first to capture is the first to own. What if they simultaneously file? At, so hypotheticals are intended. The purpose of a hypothetical is to reduce, um, sort of, um, to reduce, um, reality down to some set of, um, to a, a, situ a scenario which maintains the essentials of reality. And then it allows you to make, to, to, to draw conclusions within the microcosm, which you can then re-extrapolate out into the macrocosm of the real world. If your hypothetical involves elements or leaves out essential elements that make it no longer representative of the real world, then any conclusions you draw from within the microcosm of your hypothetical no longer apply validly to the macrocosm, right? And I would say that ontologically, this is just not something that's possible. It's not possible for two people to both induce the same idea, the same path of induction to the same idea simultaneously and to arrive and file their papers at the same time. Or Why is it possible? So even say, um, when they arrive at, at the office and they're in the queue, somebody's going to be at a position in the queue. It's just metaphysically. What if they're in so, different offices? Ultimately, 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 ontologically, metaphysically, they'll be filed in a particular order. Let's say they're filed at the same time. They'll still be processed in a different And that will be the determinant then. Sorry, uh, what if these two different offices, they can both process these documents and they can, you know, they both uh, run up with the new set of documents that they've processed and they both go to Washington, D.C. or whatever and they're both, at the exact same time, they both say, hey, uh, uh, Mr. President, we both have some new IP for you to consider and both they both get slapped on the President's desk at the exact same time. Both were filed at the same time, both processed at the same speed. Everything was the exact same. Right? Who gets the property right? Such is the reality that the president will ultimately, because he is, um, you know, he is a human being and his mind is single-threaded, he will pick up one of them before the other and they will be ordering and that person will be the winner. So whichever one the president prefers, they get the property right. Yeah. Why? Because ontologically, that is how it occurred. In, in, the, in the domain of competition, the domain of, um, the domain of human effort, you don't have a right to an outcome. You have a right to take actions, to pursue values, and to keep the values, to keep the outcomes that you do produce. 
but it, it, it the fact that you don't have a right to the out, a right to an outcome but rather the pursuit of an outcome means that you have the possibility of failure that is the nature of competition you can fail that is ultimately the rational justification what if uh, there are two different presidents in two different countries and they simultaneously slam down their stamp of approval on these different IPs who gets the property right my understanding is that the Berne Convention, which is the treaty that um, that establishes the international, uh, you know, treaty that respects property rights, has, um, you know, uh, there would be some agreed upon committee, and that would be ultimately someone would would process the claims, and the person who is processing the claims would ultimately rubber stamp one of them, serialized in order. But they're just not going to have an arbitrary decision between the two. What if these two countries, they didn't want to have any national treaty? Right, so there might not be a treaty there. So if there isn't a treaty there, who gets the property right? Ontologically. First of all, there would be no dispute over the, over the chores, given that they're in different jurisdictions. But let's take it at a global point of view. Once again... I think this, well, they submit in two different offices, same time. Ultimately, you would you would choose some sort of um, some facts of reality. Let's say, if it's really the same inductive path and the same invention submitted at the same time, we see. I don't know what criteria you would use to to, to break the tie. I don't have an answer to that. There's that not like a counterexample to your claim that there is, that he is indeed, uh, if you, you know, because you can't have group property over everything. Like, what I was expecting you to go for was, hey, uh, both of them own it, but that's impossible. And I have a proof for why that's impossible. But that's, that seems to be the only possible solution to this, because they both seem as, seemingly simultaneously homesteaded it. Right? And that's a contradiction, so it can't be the case. So the only alternative left is that neither has the property right, but that would completely throw away the entire edifice of intellectual property in the first place. But that's the only remaining option. Not the only remaining option. The remaining option is that um, some capture law is established based on some rational rules. I might not be the best person to determine what that set of objective rules would be, because I can't think of what the tiebreaker criterion should be. But what's more important is that we have established the validity of, you know, value as being mental. And from there, the question of how value is captured, how you establish capture law in um, a property interest, in an intellectual property interest. Um, it's not the best that I can't, you know, give the ultimate tiebreaker, but um, ultimately someone smarter than myself when it comes to policy making will have to come up with the correct capture law to tie break. And that's the same when it comes to physical property, you know. If you want to say, make a claim to land or whatever, you know, two people begin prospecting or whatever, there's some capture law that's established. The question of whether or not private property over land, the property interest over land um, is valid and is rational and is objective is not sort of, um, that's not what's up to question. The question is, what is the set of um, manifest facts that establish 
the property rights in one person or another. I mean, didn't you just go on a whole tirade about like uh, what Zulu has to do is he has to show, he has to poke some hole in my theory. If he can't poke a hole, then he loses, right? But now it seems like I found a little hole here, right? Because I don't think there is any objective tiebreaker criteria. I don't think there could be any objective tiebreaker criteria. Because whenever, you know, thing, it's like, oh, whichever one was wearing blue, it's like, okay, they're both wearing blue. So, okay, whichever one was wearing blue and they were rubbing their belly, they're both wearing Whatever criterion you could possibly think of, you could just say, well, if they are both doing that. But you could never have an objective criterion. It's always going to be, um, you know, arbitrary decision between the two of them. Because whatever criteria set you try and come up with to make a tiebreaker, you could always imagine a counterexample where both of them had that entire criteria set applied to them. Unless you start engaging, unless you start adding on arbitrary criteria. Like, whichever one is um, uh, closer to Mount Everest. Right? That would be arbitrary. And, uh, you know, or whichever one, um, oh, yeah, you know, uh, you flip a coin, whichever one gets heads wins. Right? That would be arbitrary. Then it would not be rational. It would not be objective. Right? So, I just want to sort of point out once again that a capture law reasoning that establishes a property interest in a, in, you know, um, a value does not invalidate the theory of value, the theory of ownership and the theory of property. Um, the question of how the capture law is established is a separate issue. Um, the philosophical okay. issue we're debating right now is the theory of value, theory of ownership, the theory of property that establishes intellectual property as property. Now, okay. capture law thing that is difficult even in the domain of physical property yeah but that, that's that's what i'm getting at right i think there is no similar counterexample to my theory of property i think there is no counterexample where two people because i have an entire section of my course going over simultaneous homesteading where two people you know they both grab a stick at the same time what happens there is if either they're in sort of a stalemate situation if person A shoves away person B, they've aggressed, so they give up the property right. So B owns the stick. If person and vice versa, right? So whilst they are in this stalemate, nobody owns the stick. It's only when somebody voluntarily breaks away from the stalemate, or they cede the property right by forcing somebody else out of the stalemate, that's when the uh, property right over the stick is known, and it's just objectively ascertainable. So I don't think there is any such counterexample for physical property. It's only in intellectual property where you have this counterexample. Well, three things to say here. The first is um first is that I, I'm not required to sort of give counterexamples to try to poke holes in physical property theory. I'm required merely to defend my edifice. Second thing is I have established a philosophical edifice, which has not been assailed so far. The only time that you know the only sort of assault I'm getting right now is one that is about who gets to how you how you mediate disputes in the um, the registration of a capture law claim based on the theory of property. Here. Um, that, that's a separate issue, and perhaps what's more, again, this scenario appears to me to be an entirely um, unrealistic scenario where two people are working at the cutting edge of some scientific field 
uh, first of all, people working at the, the cutting edge of any scientific field have specialized equipment, specialized knowledge. They, they do multiple assays and experiments and so on. Ontologically, it is not realistic to propose that they come to the same inductive sequence of reasoning to the same method. And additionally, uh, you know, they complete their notes at the same time. They file their notes at the same time. And, they, they, and there's more of a tiebreaker that's required. This ontologically does not, you know, appear to me to be a realistic hypothetical. And so I just don't think that you can draw conclusions in this microcosm and apply them in the macrocosm of the real world. It does not ontologically appear to be, to be valid. The hypothetical isn't valid as far as I can tell. I mean, whether it's unrealistic is irrelevant to whether it's uh, logically valid because it fits within rule. It, it could theoretically happen. It's very unrealistic. It probably won't happen. That doesn't mean that it's invalid because that's what counterexamples are, right? It's uh, a potential situation which could arise, which uh, throws up smoke into your entire theory, right? Ontologically, of course. But one thing we want to establish is that when we're doing, you know, philosophical discussion and debates, we're trying to understand how we're going to live in the real world, and we're not trying to understand how we're going to live in Narnia, right? We're trying to establish rules for living in Narnia. And what's more important to sort of point out is, um, you said it's, it's not realistic. It might, it might not be realistic, but it could be logical. Um, remember that logic is rules of inference applied to premises, applied to facts of reality, right? You can't apply logic to, you know, non-facts. You apply logic to facts. So to speak of applying logic to non-realistic scenarios is, you know, sort of a, it's a, it's not logical to talk about applying logic to Narnia, so to speak, right? I mean, yeah, just, I mean, ontologically speaking, though, you did uh, go on a whole tirade about how my task is to poke holes in the thesis that you provided, and ontologically, um, I have done that with my counterexample. Well, again, um, my philosophical edifice is one that's meant to address facts of reality in the real world. And I'm not certain that the hole that you've poked based on an actually realistic scenario that could actually ontologically occur. I mean, do you deny that it could occur, though? I'm fairly certain that it could. Sorry, that it could not. Um, so you think it could that. not occur? What is impossible? The idea that two people are at the cutting edge of their fields doing experimentation and they all right. First of all, they're working on the same problem at the cutting edge, and they are approaching the same problem, the same hypotheses, and the same problem, problem with the same hypotheses, using the same method to confirm or, or reject that hypothesis, and they are they're using all of these factors being the same between them, and they arrive at the conclusion at the same time, and they complete their notes at the same time, and will file at the same time. It, yeah. Remember that probability works such that, not just probability, but, you know, just likelihood. Okay, such that each factor that you add is not additive, it's multiplicative. So the chances of, you know, an event that is one, one in 10 occurring alongside an event, which is one in 10, which alongside an event, which is one in 10, is not three in 10. It's one in it's 10 by 10 by 10, right? So it's one in a thousand. It's not three out of 10. So it's multiplicative. So at each point, it gets more absurd. Until it you just can't establish why it's impossible, though. 
Because you could theoretically, like the situation we're in right now, you could tally up every single fact about the arrangement of every atom in the small, right? Every single thing that everybody's doing. And you'd be like, wow, this is a very, very unlikely situation. And yet we're living in it, right? So the fact that it's unlikely does not imply that it's impossible. I think at this point, we'll have to leave it to the audience in their minds to determine whether this is hypothetical <laughs> and which whether it's valid to draw the inference from this, you know, this alleged realistic hypothetical that there's a problem. But the claim was realistic. If it's not, if it's not realistic, then it's not useful as a hypothetical. Well, false. That's just not correct. You misunderstand what hypotheticals are there to do. They're there to test the bounds of your theory. No, you could test right in the center, right in an easy hypothetical, right? But that's all very interesting. I want to test the bounds because I'm looking for holes, right? And, you know, we both agree that you the center of your thesis real, real sturdy. I'm just looking for any hole, as you yourself said, ontologically, of course. Uh, I'm just looking for some sort of hole in your thesis somewhere. And if that hole happens to be at the bounds, well, that's still a hole in your thesis. Your thesis should apply across the entire set of information that it's supposed to apply to. Or else it's not correct. I have found some contradiction. No, I, I don't think hypotheticals are about testing bounds. Hypotheticals are about um, taking reality, removing the elements of reality which are not essential to understanding a particular problem, and then considering the problem with the, with the non-essentials left out so that you can draw valid conclusions about reality in the macrocosmic scale from the essentialized microcosmic scale. It's not about testing boundaries by proposing unrealistic scenarios. It's about taking reality and making it more, more relevant to the scenario, not making reality less relevant. You, when you propose a hypothetical, you are trying to be, you are trying to come into contact with reality more vividly, not less vividly. That's the first thing. And the second thing is once again, my philosophical edifice established validity. My philosophical edifice was not concerned with capture law. So poking a law, poking a hole in capture law does not poke a hole in my philosophical edifice. Just want to point that out. So on your philosophical, if, if your philosophical edifice has some counter, you know, ontologically speaking, this counterexample would indeed be a counterexample, right? It would uh, disprove the thesis because it doesn't apply in all situations that could arise. And this is a situation which could arise. Sorry. Once again, uh, my philosophical edifice was a realistic ed edifice based on facts of reality. It's meant to govern human life in reality. And again, I question the realism of this hypothetical. What's unreal about it? Like, what, what couldn't happen there? Like, what's impossible about it? The notion that two people could be at the edges of human knowledge simultaneously with the same facts, with the same hypo hypotheses, with the same approach, with the same, you know, instruments and materials, with the same quality of materials, with the same amount of time to work on the problem, arriving at the same time to the same conclusion, preparing their notes at the same time. All of these do not occur in reality. No, no, no. What's impossible imputed, though? Because a hypothetical, my nature of being a hypothetical, it didn't actually happen, right? But it could happen. That's why it's a hypothetical situation rather than a historical example. Right, but what is impossible about this hypothetical? What could not occur there? Okay, um, I could give an argument for why I would say it's um, identity-based um, impossible. Let's say, so consciousness itself is an identity. 
consciousness has things it can do and things it cannot do. It's constrained by its own identity. Um, simple experiment for the audience to follow to establish this. Try to imagine an object which is simultaneously all throughout, inside and out, both black and white simultaneously. You can't do that because you know that's a contradictory op- that's a contradictory operation for consciousness to perform. It's not. It's a thing that consciousness cannot do. Now, I gave another thing that consciousness can't do earlier. You can't imagine colors beyond the visible spectrum. You can't imagine sound beyond your audible spectrum. There are things that consciousness can do and things it cannot do. That, that, that means consciousness is an identity. Now, along with consciousness's identity is its identity in cognition. In particular, there, there's a particular set of order. And, um, you know, uh, when you are reasoning, you can't skip steps, right? Because of the nature of cognition. Cognition is a definite process with definite steps. I would propose that based on the identity of, consci- of, of consciousness and based on the method of cognition, it is not possible for two people to compute the same operations at the same speed, for two people to have, you know, be in two different geographical locations. Because inherent in this hypothetical is that these are two competitors. So they're in two different geographical locations. They have access to the same facts, apparently. Um, they have access to the same, you know, the same equipment, the same quality of equipment, the same, this, this, you know, and, and then so ontologically, there are those problems. The competitors to different patients, just the same, the same thing. And so their cognition proceeds at the same speed because their brains are ontologically the same, which is actually physically impossible. The, the law, um, you know, evolution doesn't provide for that. The average human, any human being on at birth, at conception, has at least 60 mutations. And by the time the 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 um, fetus finishes developing, they have as you know, generally on average, one hundred thirty mutations. The idea that two brains and therefore that two consciousnesses execute the same is already invalid. So that that right there is one impossibility, one fact which makes it actually disqualifying as a possibility. Well, no, uh, the fact that uh, you know different consciousnesses are indeed cells and not something else, that doesn't imply that they can't discover the same fact at the same time. Right, they can invent the same thing. You know, it could be the case that two different consciousnesses just so happen to come up with the same ideas at the same time. And yeah, that's possible. That is possible. No, I just think so. okay. Well, what if what if right? You know, because the you know uh, the turbine engine we we're talking about that involves a bunch of different facts of nature. Right, there isn't a canonical process that you have to discover these facts. Maybe you discover facts about, uh, you know, mechanics before facts about magnetism, before facts about other things. You know, you could discover these things in different orders. What if these two people they just they discovered the exact same the same engine at the same time, but they discovered the different facts in slightly different orders? Like they shuffled up the orders. What about that? I'm sorry, are you saying that two different sets of principles of mechanics and, you know, using different you know, principles of, say, a different, different approach, two different approaches to constructing an engine, two different, um, you know, principles of mechanics being employed in that engine would result in the same method and the same invention? I think those are two saying, different I'm saying you discover the principles in different orders. So maybe you discover that, uh, you know, if you lube up a uh, turbine, uh, you know, like a, an axle or whatever. If you lube it up, then it will do more efficiently. Maybe you discover that first, and then you discover the facts. 
Or maybe you discover them in reverse order. You could discover these facts in different orders. No, that's another... That one is actually just ruled out by reality itself. So knowledge is contextual and hierarchical. And there's a, there are, there's logical order to knowledge and then there's chronological order to knowledge. I think you're trying to say that it's possible to discover knowledge in any ordering. No. No, 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 no not in any ordering. Like, you couldn't discover that uh, turbines work better when you supply AC as opposed to DC before you even know that turbines exist, right? You can't just have an arbitrary order, but you can have some difference to the ordering, right? I might discover that objects fall before I discover that you can launch objects in the atmosphere, or I might discover it in different order, right? If I, if, if I, you know, drop a stone before I try and throw a stone upwards, I might discover those two facts in different orders, right? Ontologically, of course. Yes, but the outcome, the effects of that is again going to be another thing that will, that will guarantee that these will be, these inventions will be completed at different times because different contexts of knowledge allow different inferences and conclusions. So let's say you discover, you know, a broad generalization. Um, before a narrow generalization, then you will move faster than the person who, who discovers a narrow generalization before a broad generalization. You will come. So the order of discovery does actually influence the speed at which you arrive as an outcome. Okay, yeah, it may, it may influence the speed, but what if the person who took who would take longer, they happen to start it just enough before the other person who take discovery shorter, such that they end up discovering it at the exact same time? Well, then this. This is also ruled out by identity. It's not even a probability problem. No, no, no. How is it ruled out by identity? Yeah, I'm going to So, um, you know, the the impetus to begin investigating any particular notion or idea is spurred on. It is sort of um, it it is sparked by the facts that are in your context. So, you know, you you could talk about you know, uh, what ultimately what you're trying to describe is a state where two people start at different times but they arrive at the conclusion at the same time. Ultimately, what you're trying to talk about then is that the context of knowledge between them were different, and yet they were somehow able to arrive at the same context of knowledge simultaneously. This Right, yeah, because you told me that uh, they would take different amounts of time. Like, you know, one person would take N amount of time, and the other person would take N plus 3 amount. Right? So what if the other person would take N plus 3 started... So minus, at point minus three and the person who had n amount of time to discover it started at zero like the because if they take different rates of time the person who would take longer started just enough ahead such that they would finish at the same time like it's not a, not a valid counter example so they did yeah. different discovery processes but they arrived at the same point at the same time well remember that i didn't just say it, it was about time i said it was about the context of knowledge available. So broader generalizations versus narrow generalizations, right? So context of knowledge is what is important there. That is what would gate that would that is what would gatekeep or sort of um, that is what would constrain the speed at which they could work. You can only work Yes, but change the speed. But, but I explained yeah, okay, so they take different amounts of time. That one the faster one starts later. Please don't like just wait until I finish making the point because I was going to sort of tie <laughs> Okay, sorry about that. So, um, yeah, so when I made this point about speed, I was talking about the number of necessary steps. Um, the number of necessary steps is going to influence, you know, 
the time, uh, the, the minimum time required for you to arrive at a particular conclusion. That, that number of steps is really about context of knowledge. So again, when we apply to the scenario that you brought up a little bit earlier, that you know, I was trying to respond to, which is, you know, okay, so they are, they start at different times. Um, and they, so basically you're saying that they were spurred on by different contexts of knowledge. So one person started at a time when he had the, the, uh, he, he had the required context of knowledge to realize that this is a worthwhile investigation. He had that context of knowledge before the other person. And then he already began his investigation. Then the next person begins his investigation later. He, he gets the context of knowledge required to indicate to him that this is a worthwhile you know, direction of investigation. The person who started earlier is going to have the advantage because in the very nature of the context of knowledge that spurred him to begin the investigation is the fact that his context of knowledge was greater. And that's why I said that is in that is ruled out by the law of identity itself. It's not probabilistic at that point. It's actually just ruled out by the nature of cognition. So you think it's literally impossible for two people to discover the same thing at the same time? I've given about what nature of consciousness as an identity. I gave rules of... Okay, consciousness is an identity, but that doesn't mean that two people can't think of the same thing at the same time. Just gave three reasons why it is impossible. No, 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 no. Were you able to argue against the three reasons I gave? I gave consciousness being an identity, chronology, and um, you know, logical ordering, and context of knowledge. Were you able to argue against those? Yes. Um, you know, you could imagine that uh, two people on two different Earths, you know, they have the same context for all their knowledge. Like they don't know about each other. Same context, same chronological events uh, going on on both of these Earths, and then they both. Uh, come to the same realization at the same time. What is impossible about this? So now there are Sorry. two different Earths, right? What is impossible about that? I'm sorry. When you're when you're proposing, I have two or three spots to give. So just so don't sort of button before I finish. Right. So first thing is when you're proposing hypotheticals, you are supposed to be trying to get closer to reality, not further away from reality. When you propose a, a hypothetical, you're supposed to essentialize such as you remove things which are non-essential. If you introduce a second earth, you are not removing the non-essential. You are introducing non-essential elements to make the scenario less realistic. That's the first thing. So this hypothetical we just proposed is literally not something that you can draw conclusions from and apply them at the macro scale to reality. The hypothetical is invalid. But aside from that, the second thing I want to say is once again, we already established that two brains cannot have the same structure that's guaranteed by the by evolution itself. So consciousness being an identity arising in its substrate, in a specific substrate, a brain, and being the results, the emergent um, phenomenon of the motion of that, you know, of the various phenomena in that brain must reflect the differences in that brain and the differences in cognition between those two brains will reflect the underlying structure in those brains, which is guaranteed to be different because mutation occurs. Mutation occurs, homeostatic environments in the brain are different, even if even if the brains, you know, were the same, which is already impossible. Even if we grant the impossible to make your argument stronger, to, make, to allow your hypothetical, homeostatic chemical environments in the brain would also influence the speed of signaling and so on. That's still impossible. So again, this is a, an impossible hypothetical. 
it is not by real. It's not impossible, right? Because you can imagine, yeah, these two different people, they might have different ideas, right? They might, uh, they both discover, oh, if you move a magnet uh, this way around, uh, you know, wires, it will create a current. They may discover that at the same time. And then one decides, oh, I've got an idea. I'm going to have a chicken sandwich. The other decides, oh, I have an idea. I'm going to have a ham sandwich. Right, so they are, di- they are having different ideas. They are two different consciousnesses. But they're discovering the same relevant ideas at the same time. Sorry, Zulu, in order for you to... Uh, how do I say this? You can't... After I just li- I just described a, a law of reality, I-, I took facts, like evolution, homeostatic chemical environments in the brain, differences that these would necessarily give, give rise to in combination. Um, you know, procedures of fact establish an argument based on fact. You can't after that just come up with the arbitrary and two. But you can imagine that you know, you can imagine X. You know, you, you can't just look at reality. I describe reality and then you say, but you can imagine pigs flying. That's arbitrary. I'm not required to engage with the arbitrary. I'm sorry. The hypothetical is it's not arbitrary. It's a, it's a potential counterexample to your thesis, right? And you were asking me, you went on the whole tie every day. I just want to restate. That what Zulu has to do is he has to find, he has to poke some holes in my thesis. So okay, okay, I'm poking holes. Right, this is a possible situation which could arise. You can imagine, right? This is possible. There's nothing impossible happening about two people coming to the same invention at the same time. That's not impossible, right? It's unlikely, but it's not impossible. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to state why it's impossible. You talked about what is possible and what is potential. Potentiality is identities in reality acting in line with their identity, right? A thing only has the potential to act in line with its identity. I explain why, for example, it is literally impossible ruled out by evolution and say homeostasis and any number of other factors for two brains to have the same cognitive sort of, you know, capabilities, the same structure, the same speed, the same whatever else in, in practice. And also, I explain, you know, um, I think... You talked about possibility. Um, so potentiality and now possibility. The possible starts with fact. Anything, you know, you, you can't talk about that which um, is possible if it is ruled out by the law of identity itself because the law of identity is a law that describes the fundamental nature of reality. And if I talk about the identity of consciousness itself, you can't then, after I talk about the fact of the identity of consciousness, introduce an arbitrary potential for consciousness to act in a manner that goes against its identity. You're going yeah, to have potential to have to example. Sorry. You're going to have to argue against the identity argument. At this point, I have established an identity argument which is based on facts. Any argument you bring up from this point must be assaulting that argument from facts. You can't assault an argument from facts about reality using imaginary, non-reality based um, you know, speculation. You can't talk about imagine. You can imagine that pigs fly. If I described pigs in reality to you, and said that pigs evolved in such a manner that they don't fly, right? Yeah, no, I can indeed talk about a counterexample. It's a it's a potential counterexample. I'm not saying this will necessarily happen, but it could happen. And under the situation, you don't have an answer to how your property system would deal with it. Right? It could occur. There's nothing impossible about it occurring. Right? It doesn't imply any contradictions or anything like that, right? Because these two consciousnesses, they are two consciousnesses. They are different, 
they come to the same idea at the same time. They just so happen to come to the same idea at the same time, right? And in that situation, you either have you either have to go down the path of they both own the idea, or ideas can't be owned. Those are the only two paths you can go down, right? If they both own the idea, then you run into contradiction. If ideas can't be owned, then I win, right? Either way, I win because contradictions are false. Okay, so, um, again, uh, if I describe to you facts about pigs, I just, you know, fact that pigs, you know, they evolved from class mammalia, which evolved from, you know, class Gorgonoptia, which evolved from this and the other. I took, I traced the genetic and the evolutionary history of pigs. And I say, okay, this is what pigs are in reality. And I say, you know, I have a fact-based argument. I'm pointing at reality. I'm in contact with reality. And then you tell me, imagine that pigs fly. And then you say that, you know, my, my, um, my, my edifice cannot abide attacks from the arbitrary. My edifice, you know, you, you poked a hole in my edifice by proposing something from Narnia. And you said that my, my, um, my framework can't handle attacks from Narnia. I would agree with you. I can't, I can't handle attacks from Narnia. You're correct. No, no, no. It's not an attack from Narnia, right? It's an attack which could happen in this world right now. It could happen. And you would have absolutely no way to deal with it. So it's a counterexample. Okay. Once again, I explained that this is invalidated by the nature of evolution, by the nature of consciousness. It's not. You're wrong, right? So, right. I've explained why you're wrong about the Right. You're wrong that the nature of evolution and all this gobbins. You're wrong that it implies that two people could not have the same idea at the same time. You're just incorrect about that. Right? Okay. I said that. I said that this is the nature of reality based on evolution, and I gave an evolutionary reason. I said, you have mutations occurring at points. Did you say that ontologically speaking? Did you say that ontologically? Yes, evolution is an ontological fact. Okay, okay, good. But I just have to make sure that you're ontologically speaking. Yes, so I'm referencing facts of reality as in the real world right now. At points of conception, the average human has somewhere around 30 uh, mutations. By the time they're done developing into, you know, a baby, you know, and com- coming, done fully developing into a baby, there's around 120 average, somewhere around there, mutations. Because an ontological fact. <laughs> two, two brains are not the same. Two brains and consciousness being an emergent phenomenon that arises up in the substrate, arises from the action of the substrate of the brain, does not, op- does not uh, operate, you know, at the same speed, with the same dexterity, intelligence, and all that. Two brains are always going to be different. <laughs> That's an ontological fact. In order for you to argue against that, you're going to have to talk about reality. You can't just say, that's just false. You can't say, you know, my statements about ontological reality concerning evolution, homeostasis, you know, the nature of consciousness as an identity. These facts are just wrong. Can't just say, it's just wrong. You're going to have to make a, a statement of facts based on some factual arguments to talk about that now. Otherwise, my argument stands because I am the one who's referencing facts. Right, so I mean, ontologically speaking, though, uh, the fact that two brains are different, that doesn't mean they can have the same idea at the same time. Right? Yeah, they are different. They are different in some subtle ways. Like, they're both brains. It's both similar, but they are different, right? <coughs> but the fact that they're different doesn't imply that they can't have the same idea at the same time. Right? They can't have the same idea at the same time. That's plausible. The fact that they're different doesn't imply that they can't. Right, once again, remember that it's about context of knowledge. The impetus to start a particular um, investigative path because of context of knowledge. 
And then the particular generalizations which are drawn along your path of induction, because consciousness moves in a particular chronological sequence, necessitated by the fact that it cannot skip steps in reasoning. Okay, that doesn't doesn't attack my argument at all. I think it attacks in combination with the fact that ontologically the brains are different and therefore the, the speed of cognition is going to be different. Ultimately, it's the number of steps for any particular person will be different. It attacks that because you would ultimately have to propose to people taking effectively the same path or to people taking different paths which converge on the same conclusion. But even then, if they converge on the same conclusion, you have to specify, say, different starting points. And even there, if you have different starting points, the sequence of reason that they take from that point is still not guaranteed to get them to the same point because the context of knowledge that they started from was clearly different because they were spurred on by different contexts. That's why they didn't start at the same time. And so, Is it, is it impossible for two people to speak at the same time? No. Okay, is it impossible for two people to finish a race at the same time? No. Okay, well, uh, why is it impossible? Okay, all right, here we go. But I love why why is it impossible for two people to finish a race? I'm not certain that's possible, but I'll grant it to you. I'm not certain it's possible because ultimately uh, Oh, that's 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 your answer. Okay, so two people can finish a race at the same time. Why couldn't they finish the race to the patent office at the same time? And the race to discover the invention at the same time. Why couldn't they finish those races? If they could finish a food race at the same time. You don't think we're talking about racing to the patent office on foot at the same time only. You do something a series of steps, all of which are not possible, some of them which are invalidated by the nature of consciousness itself. They're not, though. So. Okay. Oh, Zulu, Zulu, at this point, maybe we should let the maybe we should let the audience decide whether they think that this this hypothetical that you're proposing is actually a valid hypothetical. You know? Sure, let's put it on the democratic vote. Yeah, because that's how philosophy is decided. Sure. I wasn't going to propose a democratic vote. I was going to let the audience decide on their own and move on to the next topic. But if you want to put stuff to a vote, I don't think that establishes the validity of a, a, an argument. Quite frankly, I don't think that says anything. I think that just let the audience decide on YouTube after they watch the video. They'll decide whether they think that's a realistic hypothetical. I, I I've made enough speaking. Yeah, I, I've made enough arguments to show that this is not realistic, not tied to reality. So I think they'll decide on their own from here on. Sure. So, um, gentlemen, uh, I've done business with both of you in the past. Just to give a brief interjection here and speak to our live audience. Uh, which I've been keeping track of on both fronts. Um, Basically, we're currently on a point of an impossible occurrence versus an implausible occurrence. Uh, The audience, just to be a voice for them, they'd kind of uh, essentially like us to pull back to the core of this discussion on the legitimacy or illegitimacy of intellectual property. Uh, I'll go ahead and take my leave, but uh, from here, essentially, they just want us to pull it back uh, to the core of the discussion uh, from this specific tangent, um, as quite a few are getting lost. Well, I'm fine to bring it back to the core, but, you know, I was being uh, exalted. I, I was being 
spoken to by Wellspring saying that, hey, Zuli, what you need to do, I'm just going to get through this again, and what you need to do is you need to poke holes in my arm. And I think I found a pretty big hole here. Right, but we can get back to the argument. The impossibility well, thesis of IP is basically that you cannot have a property right in, in, in an idea. Intellectual property rights are impossible because ideas are not scarce. That is the core of the argument that I'm making. And sure, then Wellspring could go on after that and say, well, yes, you do have a property right in a technical, this negative easement path, it's in some way justifiable. That's what I'd like him to do, but he's not doing that. I just want to make sure to state that, you know, my philosophical edifice was not, um, you know, uh, I, I didn't propose a political framework, a policy framework for effectuating intellectual property to talk about, you know, um, how you determine the capture law. Capture law was not part of my framework. It's not, I don't need to present um, a capture law, you know, a theory of capture law either. Can you explain what you mean by capture law? Good. So in legal reasoning, capture law is the sort of the set of manifest conditions, the manifest facts which you have to, the set of the relationship to an object or the relationship to some, you know, some value that you have to manifest in order for your property claim to be valid, for you to to be the the valid sort of first owner of an unowned resource, so to speak, an unowned value. Truly, that's entirely relevant to IP, though. Because you, if you think that there is some way that you can own an idea, it's relevant how you can own an idea. Yeah, I, I've explained that it comes from value as such, comes from evaluation. And then property is, you know, the set of, the set of claims you can make to action concerning a particular value. From there, the question of how you establish the capture law for a particular intellectual property value. That's a matter of induction, proof of induction. Tie-breaking between two people is part of capture law, which is not the philosophical edifice. The philosophical bridge for me here is to establish that property rights are valid, that there is such a thing as a right state to a value. I have to have a theory of, of, of value. I have to have a theory of ownership of values and a theory of property, concern values. Um, in other words, a, a, a theory of, you know, uh, actions concerning that value and what actions are valid and which are not. But establishing capture law in that, that particular value is not not a philosophical issue. That's a policy issue. But it is an issue of philosophy because we're talking about law, which is an area of philosophy. So it's how uh, are the property rights arrived? How do you get a property right in something? You know, it's uh, ethics that applied to conflict, which is indeed an area of philosophy. So it's still an area of philosophy. Right, so you're just incorrect there categorically. Again, you're correct categorically. You're replacing these um, monopoly grants as property, uh, which is incorrect. That's a category error, and you're again you're making another category error, claiming that well, no, this isn't an issue of philosophy. And for example, Paul, it's not an issue of philosophy. Even though I was asking, this is not an issue of philosophy, so I'm just ignore it. Right. It's just wrong, still, again. Yeah, um, you're, you're free to assert that. So I think that's uh, what you, you know, before you made that statement just now, the statement you were making before is you went back to sort of ignoring the fact that uh, 
you know, we already went through a whole conversation where we agreed that, you know, the thing that is created from the process of, you know, mental creativity and evaluation is a value. And that property, you know, property is uh, what we agreed that it was the attempt to, um, no, property is the claims to the actions that you can take concerning a value. And then conflict is, you know, what was it? An attempt to use a value in, in a manner that's contradictory. Um, take some contradictory actions concerning a value with another person. So we went through all of that earlier and you just sort of went back to the stage of pre-establishment that, you know, um, the, the the results of mental activity is itself a value. And then we're just going to have to go back through that again. So either you accept what we've established before or we're going to have to go through it. Well, you know, I was asked to go back to the core issue. And when Frank came in here, I was asked to say, we'll go back to the core issue. Which every time I do what I'm asked to, I'm getting attacked for it, right? So what do you want me to do? What debate do you want me to have right now? Okay, so as far as I understand, it seems as if we've gone through the core issue and I've been able to establish and uphold my theory of value, my theory of ownership, theory of property, and how conflict is defined in that situation. That's the theory of intellectual property there. And then Zulu's only attack that he was able to make there was one when it comes to capture law concerning the property right that I had already established and defended. I don't agree that capture law is, you know, a philosophical issue. Capture law is, you know, more of a practical consideration in politics for policymakers. I'm not a policymaker. I don't have an answer when it comes to capture law. Um, it's not, it's not, you know, philosophically relevant. So, I mean, like, you could not have an answer. That's what's relevant. You could not possibly come up with. You could not possibly come up with a rational answer to this question. That is, come up with an irrational. Sure, but you could not come up with a rational one. So therefore. So therefore, as a counterexample. Yeah, I will leave it. To, so at this point, we're at an impasse. We, we've come up to a point where we sort of, we have established and we seem to have agreed that, you know, all the premises line up, um, you know, so, you know, imagination creates values. Values are owned by the person who creates them. Property is claims to a value. Conflict is, you know, uh, attempts to use a value contradictory. And so on. We, did, we, got, we did all of that. And so at this point, we'll just have to leave it to the audience unless you have another line of attack. I think we already went through, you know, your objection concerning what I have, you know, given re decent reasons um, as being an invalid hypothetical. And we'll just have to leave it up to the audience whether they think that was a valid hypothetical. At this point, unless you have another line of attack, there's nothing else for us to discuss. Sure. Uh, so I, I guess we uh, leave the democratic... Okay, so I think that's it on my end. Um, thank you very much for your time, Liquid Zulu. I wish you the sure. best. You too. It was actually surprisingly good. Um, you did fairly decently, you know, um, and you were fairly honest in the way you engaged, at least with the philosophical core. Um, uh, I think the hype. Well, I, I, we've already talked about the fact that I think the hypothetical is, you know, not very good. But aside from that, this was a really good debate. Thank you. I really, it was actually worth my time. Uh, you know, thank you. This was a good news of my Yeah. I, mean, I I might not be against having another debate with you, given how this went. I might not be against it. If, uh, you know, Lord Wellspring would grace me with his presence, huh? how could I reject? That's right. I am quite special. That's right. Sure. All right. So I'll see you later. Ontologically speaking, of course. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So I'll see you later. Yeah.
Maybe you will.